Australia and welcome to the Stand Up Australia podcast, Stand Up Sits Down, this week with Dr Chris Neal. Stand Up Sits Down is a contrarian conversation rebutting the mainstream narrative. Each week we discuss and deconstruct the most relevant news stories in Australia and all around the world that you may have missed during the past week. We separate fact from fiction so you can make better decisions about which way you want to go politically and personally. This week, we welcome back Dr. Chris Neal, the superstar cardiologist and president of AMPS, to break down the week's events. Chris has been a cardiologist for 14 years and enjoys working with all sorts of people, living in the beautiful Macedon Ranges with his wife and, and kids. He's the president of the Australian Medical Professional Society, AMPS, which aims to restore the patient-doctor relationship in Australian medicine. Don't we all miss that? And to fight and bring light to the unreasonable decisions that have been made recently by our governing medical bodies. Hello, Chris. How are things in formerly beautiful Victoria, now Afghanistan? Oh, things are absolutely beautiful today. The weather's great in uh, where I am. Yeah, that's good. Good to hear. Good to hear. All right. Shall we jump in? Yeah, go for it. First story. Tony, I am the science Fauci, finally admits that respiratory illness cannot be controlled by vaccines after pushing mandates for two years. Honestly, I mean, uh, I don't even know what to say about this. I actually wrote on my Substack about this. So here's a shameless plug for my Substack. You can find mm-hmm. it at tutor.substack.com. And I've titled this, I Informed You Thusly Part 2. So, Chris, you're uh, familiar with this particular paper that 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 uh, tiny Tony Fauci penned? Or I am. No. Oh, it's fascinating, isn't it? And it gets back to very basic things that have been known for more than two decades and not really developed in vaccinology sufficiently at all. And that is for respiratory transmission where it's the upper airway, typically the you know nose and throat that, that uh, these pathogens get in. Um, it just, you, you need mucosal immunity, yeah. as you know. So that, that involves um, IgA, a different type of uh, um, immune antibody than IgG, which is a typical yeah. one you get vaccination. And, and specifically uh, secretory IgA, correct, mm. which is not the same as circulating IgA. So there is some circulating, yeah. uh, circulatory IgA production from vaccines, but no secretory IgA. What's What really fascinated me about this particular paper is just the way that, that Fauci and there were two co-authors, the way they discussed that in exactly the terms that you just described. Everybody knows this. Hey, we've known this for years. Um, yeah. Okay with you if I just... So vaccinology should have been really adopting this. Um, so if we, give the, you know, if we give the whole field of vaccinology the benefit of the doubt, uh, a, a way to do this, for instance... To, to engender um, proper immunity. And we could think of protein-based vaccinations for this um, would be uh, would be an, an injection and then possibly two shots orally, uh, you know, thereafter. So the boosters should be uh, boosting mucosal immunity, not, not um, you know, not humoral immunity, which is the blood-borne immunity. 
And it's absolutely fascinating because they actually discuss this in the paper. They say there probably won't ever be one vaccine product, one standalone product that induces both mucosal immunity and then immunity in the other body compartments that matter, including pulmonary immunity, which is actually separate. So uh, there, there are a couple of fascinating passages. I've, could I just ask too, Chris, as a, as a doctor, were you ever required to get an influenza vaccination in order to, you know, for example, um, see patients or practice in a hospital? Look, I think in Victoria that became mandatory uh, in 2020 due to state laws. Um, before that, it was strongly encouraged. Um, <clears throat> I, I used to often find there was pressure to do that. Um, mm. But, um, you know, uh, it, it was only quite recently that it became officially mandatory. Interesting. Yeah. So here are a couple of relevant passages from this article. Uh, quote, until the emergence of COVID-19, influenza had for many decades been the deadliest vaccine preventer, preventable viral respiratory disease, one for which only less than suboptimal vaccines are available. Over the years, influenza vaccines have never been able to elicit durable protective immunity against seasonal influenza virus strains. And a little bit later on, uh, as of 2022, after more than 60 years of experience with influenza vaccines, very little improvement in vaccine prevention of infection has been noted. As pointed out decades ago, and still true today, the rates of effectiveness of our best approved influenza vaccines would be inadequate for licensure for most other vaccine preventable diseases. End quote. Chris, what do you think of that? Yeah, look, um, there are reasons why it's very difficult and statistically improbable to develop a, a good vaccine. Um, influenza, uh, for influenza in particular, so influenza has shift and drift, so it has a, a more room for genetic variation season to season than any other um, respiratory virus. So the first statistical problem is you've got to predict what's going to happen the next year, and they, they try to do that, but it's very difficult. And so we have, um, you know, so I, I remember talking about this with statisticians and, uh, years ago, and they just thought this is the most ridiculous enterprise if you're really trying to prevent the disease. Yes. But in addition, um, there's probably this whole humoral versus um, humoral versus a mucosal immunity problem. And so the net result is where we've known for ages that it's really 20 to 60% effective. The 60, it turns out, is the absolute, you know, that that'll be a that'll be a very unusual result for a season to have sixty percent prevention. Now, however, you measure that, but it's, so it's much more likely it's less than half. Yeah, from what I've seen, it's more likely you know hovering around that sort of ten to twenty percent mark, which is which is barely yeah. barely noticeable. And there was an interesting analysis some years ago by Lisa Jackson, which indicated that that even that benefit was almost entirely attributable to the healthy user effect or you know the healthy vaccinee effect. So it's very likely that these things do absolutely nothing, and yet some some professions are actually mandated in certain jurisdictions to receive vaccines, which, as was pointed out in this article, that they wouldn't even meet the standards for licensure if there wasn't effectively a grandfathering clause. So uh, later on in, in yeah. this article, which was published in, in Cell, that's a highly prestigious journal, 
You have to be a you know bit of a poo bar to to get published in Cell, and they go on to say that exactly the same problems as you've uh, outlined with influenza vaccines apply to SARS-CoV-2 as well. So you've got these these rapid uh, very uh, rapid emergence of variants, and uh, as we all know now, the original uh, SARS-CoV-2 vaccines are failing to contain those variants. Um, in fact, the latest data indicate that basically the more COVID-19 vaccines you get, the, the more likely you seem to be to, to actually get COVID. So um, any any other thoughts mm. about this uh, this fascinating paper and the relationship between the Tony Fauci who who co-authored this and the Tony Fauci who was, you know, shoving mandates down workers' throats in the US? Yeah, I, I think that... Um... My my suspicion would be that this is about um, trying to push a new a new product and um, invoke that sort of uh, where you know the the answer is just beyond us, but we've got to keep going in this direction. Yeah, yeah, and and that's what they get to at the end of the article. Basically, send more money. <laughs> we're we're really yeah. on. We promise. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well. Mm, or not so great, but anyway, I mean, at least, at least the truth is finally gradually dripping out. Okay, uh, next, next story. Actually, the next couple are, are very relevant to you as, as, as a Victorian. So story number two, Victoria records highest number of annual suicides since 2000 amid fears of, fears of national trend. This appeared in The Guardian and a couple of relevant uh, passages from this. Victoria has recorded its highest number of annual suicides since the coroner's court started collecting suicide data in 2000 with mental health workers saying the trend is occurring nationally. So 2020 we had 756 suicides in, in Victoria. That was a 9% increase compared to 2021. And most of that was confined to the latter part of the year. So there were uh, an average of 58 suicides per month between January and July. And then between August and, De and December, that, that bumped up to an average of 65 a month. Interestingly, it is the 65 years and older cohort which has seen the most substantial increase in suicide rates. So a 32% rise from 2021 to 22, okay. with a 21% increase among people aged 45 to 54. These, these are not age brackets where, where we typically see a higher suicide rate. So, Chris, your your thoughts? Look, it's, it, I'm not speaking as an expert in, in suicide, but I certainly can attest to the kind of um, impact psychologically that, that has been uh, occurring in Victoria, particularly, uh, I think more than other places. I think that um, a lot of people are really disrupted still um, and... Um, sense of loss of meaning and, and what's it all for a lot of frustration huge amount of disempowerment i think that sort of correlates with the authoritarianism that's um that's been really evident in victoria i don't think it's good for mental health and you know what else where else there is um i think that there's so many inputs to that um but I, I can attest to a, a real, you know, a feeling that's in the background that um, people may or may not realise um, that is, that, you know, attacking attacking people's sense of um, mental well-being. Mm, yes. I yeah. also speak to I speak to people on the front line, um, and I would say that uh, you know people who are in psychology and that sort of um, that sort of practice, I think. Since since the lockdowns, that's been huge. A lot of people struggling over lockdowns, and, and the question is, has that has that all been alleviated now? Well, 
I hope so, but my gut feeling is that there's still some deep wounds there. There's still some residual impacts. And, of course, many, many people lost businesses. Uh, some people were forced to quit their jobs. Others uh, reluctantly agreed to get um, treatments, which they wouldn't have voluntarily chosen to get in order to keep their jobs. And they're, they're dealing with both the psychological and physical implications of that. It's a it's a mess, isn't it? It's an absolute mess. So, it, the Guardian in, uh, the Guardian uh, journalist interviewed a couple of people to discuss this, and one of the comments made was that uh, people are now facing layer upon layer upon layer of difficulty over the last three or four years, having been hit by the longer term pandemic impacts, financial stressors, including increasing interest rates and high cost of living. Um, I noticed that yeah. they, they skirt around this whole issue of, of people having been essentially infantilized, having had their, their agency taken away from them by an authoritarian government who, you know, almost literally locked them in their houses and only let them out for what was, it? I think it was an hour a day and no, no further than 5k from your home for, you know, fairly substantial periods of time, at least in, in Melbourne. So, yeah, absolutely horrifying. I, I love that you've used the term. I love that you've used the term in infantilization. Um, it's absolutely the case, um, and this is this can affect all uh, classes of people. Intuitively, um, a lot of people are just going to, you know, follow authority. I call them authoritarian followers, as opposed to authoritarian leaders. Um, thankfully, not everyone's like that, but it does. You know, if you subjugate yourself to rules which you intuitively know that are, you know don't make sense, um, it's not healthy. And you know, re regressing to a sort of an infant state is, um, well, yeah, I, I've, I think it's worthy of more consideration. But uh, so the, in, yeah, back to so in infantilization, treating someone as though they're not competent is the earliest stage of enslavement. Mm, very good point. Uh, actually, as you were speaking, I, I was reminded of the situation that occurred in, in the Soviet Union where, again, you know, people were, were infantilised by this overbearing, overweening authoritarian government that literally told them, you know, what they were to do and where they were to live and when they could get a car and, and it just interfered in their lives in every conceivable ways. And, you know, alcohol abuse was very common, still is, I believe, um, in what was the Soviet Union, and suicide rates were extremely high. There, there's just a, you know, humans humans need to be autonomous. Otherwise, they start getting really, really messed up um, physically, uh, psychologically yeah. initially, and I do believe that has an impact on them physiologically. So that's a, uh, they, they do point out in this Guardian article that the same trend is being seen in other states. Um, so in New South Wales, for instance, the most recent New South Wales data shows 885 suspected or confirmed suicide deaths reported uh, from 1 January to 30 November 2022. So that's 885 compared to 818 over the same period the year before so we are seeing this in other states as well it'll be interesting to yeah. see that come in from all over the country I wouldn't mind just commenting. you mentioned the term you know you mentioned that people have been coerced and and I um, yes many people were coerced huge numbers we don't really know how many um, many of them are heroes in the sense that they um, they made that tough decision for their family and for others and I would never want to take that away from them uh, but it can be a very, a very difficult thing to live with.
to know that you were coerced. Yes. And I, yeah, so that is, that is something I think plays in. And I think people who feel that really need support um, for their mental health, absolutely. Yeah, there is a serious loss of agency there, isn't there? That, that kind of leads mm-hmm. into our next story. Um, again, very relevant to to listeners in Victoria. And this is from The Age. It's called Withdrawal Symptoms, Why Victorian Voters Staying Away. So the article begins with a vignette of a particular voter, um, or not voter in this case, particular citizen of Victoria, Michelle Young. And it goes like this. When Victoria went to the polls last November, Michelle Young stayed at home. She didn't forget to vote, and she wasn't too busy doing something else. She just couldn't see a reason to fill out a ballot. She's always voted at past elections, and had always voted Labor, but not this time. Quote, what's the point of voting if they're not going to be helping people like me? End of quote. She says from her Braybrook home, I'm just waiting for that fine in the mail. A little later on in the article, for reasons which so far the Victorian Electoral Commission is unable to entirely explain, voter turnout slumped to the equal lowest level since compulsory voting was introduced. When this figure is combined with informal voting, nearly one in five voters played no meaningful part in the state election. So, Chris, again, as a citizen of Victoria, your thoughts on the fact that Victorians are just not bothering to vote or they're showing up to vote in order to avoid the fine, but then they're donkeying it? Well, I, I think, look, the, the onus is on the AEC to really study this because it's a crisis and it's within their mandate, it's within their, you know, field of uh, expertise and duty to the, the people. Um I, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. And I was shocked uh, at the at the conclusion of the Victorian election that that appeared to be the case. It's been probably progressive since the South Australian election and then the federal election last year too. Um, but I, I personally, I don't meet people that are, I don't meet many people who don't want to vote. So I'm, I'm also surprised. Mm. Um, I feel a lot of people are activated, um, activated, um, often to to not vote the two major parties. That's been a massive movement in my experience, not necessarily in the numbers, uh, not necessarily reflected in the numbers that, that we see. Um, and, you know, a lot, of, a lot of coalition voters wanting to protest by finding it, you know, an alternative but somewhat conservative minor party. Um, again, I, I can't fully explain it because I think that... Um, I've seen a lot of political activation as well, and I think that would have cancelled out that to some extent. Mm, yes, yes. So the Victorian Electoral Commission is looking into it a little bit further on in the Age article. The VEC has been alive to these problems since 2018, when turnout began to slide from its previous stable, previously stable level of about 93%. An informal voting spike. University of Adelaide Professor of Social Sciences, Elisa Hill, she's on the job. Uh, she says, voters are becoming increasingly withdrawn from politics. They are becoming increasingly disengaged from what we call mainstream or arena politics. They are withdrawing from representative democracy. You've got disaffection driven by real things, robo-debt, sports rorts. On top of that, you have got things that aren't real, conspiracy theories and disinformation. If you don't think the voting process is legitimate, you are not going to participate. So again, this sort of wave of the hand, oh, there's conspiracy theories out there, uh, conspiracy theorists out there who say, well, they don't count my vote anyway, or there's all sorts of shenanigans going on. Um, And then 
the, the article concludes with this. Why are voters staying away and who are they? The short answer provided by Hill, that's Lisa Hill from University of Adelaide, is that they are the people who can least afford to be left out of the democratic process. They live in traditionally safe Labor electorates in Melbourne's west and north, where most politicians, public servants and journalists don't live. They are younger, on average, than most Victorians, less educated, earn less money and are more likely to be renting. They are more likely to speak a language other than English at home. They also rely on government services, but don't feel well served by them. Absolutely incredible. Um, there's a lot of red flags in, in all of that. Um, I think that it needs to be clarified. Uh, I, it, you know, in terms of um, lumping this onto conspiracy theorists uh, who say that you know, the, the votes, the voters, um, the, you know, votes don't count or, or there's some fraudulent process of, of election rigging or something, I think it's rubbish. I think most people who are aware of that potential would vote to make sure it's as hard as possible <laughs> for for uh, their vote to be diluted. Mm, mm-hmm. Yes. So I, I think it's just nonsense, just la- sloppy, lazy thinking. Yes. I, I think that's just become the standard answer to everything. Oh, it's conspiracy theorists. So yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's uh, let's hope they get onto it and actually do the, the kind of research they need to do. Oh, sorry, there is one more passage from this Age article. I thought it was really relevant. Uh, the Edelman Trust Barometer is an annual survey which measures trust in government and other institutions across 28 countries, including Australia. Its 2022 global report shows that when surveyed about trust in democracy, only Germany recorded a sharper decline than Australia last year. In other words, out of the 28 countries where, where uh, participation is sought for this survey, it's only the Germans that who, whose trust in government has declined, you know, more dramatically than than here in Australia, and that that I find really interesting because it sort of clashes with the results of of surveys that were released just a couple of months ago, where the majority of Australians still rated the government's response to to COVID as as being you know generally acceptable or generally a good response. So. Interesting, uh, interesting difference uh, between that and, and the results of the Edelman Trust Barometer. Any thoughts on that? Well, I, I'd comment uh, that if 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 the if that sort of um, if that signal is is evident in among voters, um, then that has to be taken very seriously. And again, you know, we've we've mentioned infantilization to to suggest that there's no rational reason why people feel like that on the barometer is infantilizing the electorate, mm. which is, in, in our system, <clears throat> the, the electors are essentially the, the grantors of, you know, their representatives to represent the best interest of we, the people who are the beneficiaries of, of all of the services, you know, of, of government and, and the Electoral Commission and so forth. So, I, again, <clears throat> this trend of infantilization is, is really really worthy of of, uh, of study and, and it, it can be seen everywhere. Yes. Uh, I mean, when we look at the entire public health response, uh, the attitude from, you know, the, from the policymakers was you, you uh, plebs, cannot be trusted to make sensible decisions about protecting your own health. You can't be trusted to, you know, stay away from large gatherings if you're um, immune compromised or whatever have you. So we're going to take away your agency. We're going to tell you exactly what you can and can't do. So this, this is a, a sort of global 
in both senses of the word. This, this is a, a global trend in policymaking to treat adults, voting adults, as morons, as idiots, as people who can't be trusted to vote in elections, yeah. make about their own health, the whole box and dice. Yeah. Okay. Um, any any last thoughts about this this uh, incredible drop in in uh, electoral participation in Victoria? Um, not many, except that it, it it's the onus is on the electoral authorities to study this and report accurately about it. And you know, I don't appreciate you know sloppy and simplistic explanations invoking conspiracy theories. Yeah, it, it really is just the uh, the lazy person's non-answer, isn't it? Okay, next story uh, is TGA's recently retired chief, John Skerritt, gets caught with his pants down after covering up childhood vaccine deaths to protect the vaccine rollout. So those people who were uh, lucky enough or uh, quick enough to, to get tickets to see Dr. Peter McCulloch and Pierre Corey and John Leake and Melissa McCann in their their uh, tour of, of Australia, um, what was that, last week and, and, and the week before, would have seen an amazing presentation by Dr. Melissa McCann, who put up uh, slides of several, several people who had died um, we, we cannot say due to, but had died shortly after receiving a COVID-19 vaccine. And their deaths were, were covered up by the TGA. And the reason that was given by John Skerritt was that they did not want to go public with these cases because they didn't want the public to develop vaccine hesitancy. So, Chris, again, what are, what are your thoughts on this uh, remarkable story? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And I have a huge... Um... A great deal of appreciation for Mel McCann, who has done so much. And her presentation and her story was absolutely brilliant. And I'm so glad she was featured in each uh, each capital, um, each uh, each location, because uh, yeah, we need to we need to get these stories out. Um, the yeah, the fact that she uncovered through Freedom of Information uh, these these uh, assessments of causality is has really shone light. Uh, the explanation for withholding, um, you said you, you mentioned vaccine hinder, uh, vaccine hesitancy, but when I uh, when I looked at that, it seems that even more bizarre than that. It, it suggests um, they did not want to hinder or you know, make people less likely to report adverse events. Yes, yes, I, I do remember that. That was quoted is, the second reason. I mean, what? Why would you be less likely yeah. to report an adverse event? If yeah. you heard of adverse events, wouldn't you think you'd be more likely because you'd think, whoa, maybe this isn't coincidence. Maybe I should report this. Other doctors are reporting this. Yeah, I mean, it's like the, um, you know, the, uh, what does it say? The um, the asylum's been taken over by the inmates. It's, the, it's, the, it's just so bizarre. Um, doesn't make sense. And that in itself, you know, requiring us to comply with, with um, incompetent and hypocritical reasoning like this, it's all part of the infantilization. Yes. Yes. In other words, sure, we're issuing completely ridiculous uh, statements and, and uh, you know, policies and so forth, which anyone with two functioning brain cells will listen to this and say, hey, that doesn't make sense. But too bad. Shut up and do it anyway, even though it doesn't make sense. It's uh, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, so Rebecca Barnett. 
Yeah, go for it. Uh, Rebecca Barnett, who writes the fantastic dystopian Down Under Substack, uh, she wrote a really good post on this. By the way, for listeners, all the links to these articles will be um, in, in the note, in the show notes, so do feel free to, in fact, please do follow up. So Rebecca Barnett has actually listed um, the, the deaths that TGA's own reports assessed as causally linked to COVID vaccination, but they didn't think that we, the public, were smart enough or... Um, whatever enough to to be told these things they include a 21 year old female a, a nine-year-old a 24 year old a seven-year-old male 21 year old male so most of these are young people they're young people so chris what t- tell us what was the risk of young and otherwise healthy people of suffering some serious adverse effect from actually getting covid what, what was their risk of death it was absolutely minuscule um, that was well known. Uh, that was acknowledged by a target early on, uh, under 30, that the risk benefit was unlikely to be uh, present. So it was absolutely minuscule. And what, what has uh, happened uh, in, in, in the past? What has happened in the past when a vaccine for a viral respiratory illness, um, I'm thinking H1N1, has been released on the public and has caused serious adverse effects or, or death, uh, especially to young, healthy people? What, what happened, for instance, when the uh, flu vaccine that was developed for the, what was it, the 2009 pandemic, if I remember rightly. So that caused a number of cases of uh, death and also, um, sorry, I'm blanking, uh, of narcolepsy in young people. How many people Mm. were affected by that before that vaccine was was pulled? Um, Well, the the epicenter was Perth. So um, Mm. where it was really peaked up was Western Australia. But it was, you know, I'm aware of, of some serious, um, serious um, clusters of problems in other states, but it was really, um, Perth is where it got followed up and, mm-hmm. and hats off to them. And that resulted in a lot of review. Uh, the Stokes review uh, was produced by uh, a neurosurgeon in, um, who, was, who was acting in that capacity um, for, uh, in the public health of Western Australia. So... That highlighted a number of problems. Um, uh, the, it was really thought to be a manufacturing and batch issue um, and that there was a failure in, in good manufacturing practices that may have you know, resulted in it. Now, the company uh, was CSL. They didn't, uh, I don't believe they were, were themselves required to, to pay any fines, but I think it was either Western Australia or the, the Commonwealth that... Um, that not fine, but, but but basically provided compensation to a lot of paediatric victims. Mm. Um, do, do you and, how many people yeah. actually died um, in that in that particular case? Not off the top of my head. Um, I think it was some, but I, I think Gillian Barre was was one of the most highlighted. Um, yes. Sort of, uh, yeah. So, so we now have uh, 973 deaths reported to today in the uh, database of adverse event notifications. The TGA has acknowledged that only 14 has been causally linked to COVID vaccines, 13 to AstraZeneca and one to Moderna. And yet, again, you know, these are 14 reports where the TGA internally acknowledged the cause of death was was vaccination. The death was, was linked to, to vaccines. So uh, that's 14 out of the 973 that they previously had not acknowledged and uh, it's likely, given the age group, that all of these were, were Pfizer. Um, and yet there's been no inquiry 
Uh, these products are still on the market. The government is still pushing these onto really all age groups. Uh, what What's changed? What's changed since since that debacle back in uh, 09? Well, the well, first of all, a lot of a lot of the problems foreshadowed by the Stokes report, in, including uh, the perceived shortcomings of adverse event monitoring in Australia, um, have not been adequately addressed. Um, but what's changed broadly is the inversion of the precautionary principle. Mm, explain that for our audience. So, I mean, the precautionary principle is um, a you know, it's to do with policy. So any any uh, government policy, uh, you you need to consider the harms that you may do, and you wait. So you you wait, as in you give more weight to the harms that you will cause uh, than other factors, because there is a there is a difference. This has been hardly appreciated between a harm due to an intervention versus an act of God, a harm due to something that. Um, you unluckily get. Uh, so the, the precautionary principle has basically been inverted um, with the on the presupposition that that um, all of the precautions need to be taken against people getting COVID because that would clearly be worse than anything we could do. So uh, you know, in by way of policy, but again, the the the, the I guess the home turf of the precautionary principle is policy. It's the harms that result directly from your policy, even if your policy is well intended to offset some other harm out there. Yes. And in, in terms of drug regulation, the, the precautionary principle is everything. And it, and it relates to, um, you know, it, it, it gets to the heart of this issue um, is, um, yeah, again, um, it's, it's giving the benefit of the doubt, or there's another way to say that, but um, that you, you should be attributing things to the intervention, the, the, the pharmaceutical. Let me give an example of that. So in, in a proper randomised controlled trial that's properly um, sort of conducted, goes through an ethics committee and all that, and if it's, if it's a, um, a really significant one, it will always have a data safety monitoring board yep and um, they will have they will look at every every uh, adverse event notification they, they you know they have to look at whether it's probable or not but they'll always weight it towards or they should weight it towards it probably being due to the due to the product that they're assessing mm. and if um, they also have stopping criteria so they they agree that you know um, if there are five, you know, if there are 10 notifications of, of a cardiac condition or, you know, certainly 10 notifications of death in the group receiving the active drug, you know, bearing in mind this is likely um, concealed allocations or a blighted study, mm. um, then, then the stopping criteria would say you have to stop automatically. Yes. And, uh, and yeah, now, we saw, so we saw in the in the Pfizer data the uh, the six month data that was submitted to the FDA to gain their um, 
emergency use authorization, we actually saw that there were more deaths in the group that were given the Pfizer um, experimental shot than the placebo group, and then even more deaths piled up when breaking their own protocol, they unblinded the participants and administered the vaccine to, to those who were formerly in the placebo group. So more of them died as well. So yeah, as, as you say, as you said, if there was a proper data safety monitoring board in place, they should have looked at the excess deaths in the group that got the intervention and said, whoa there. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't safe. We got yeah. and also it, it it's essentially a statutory requirement that any death on a in a trial is notified to the the state health department. Mm. Uh, I, and I think it it'd also be uh, be really really useful for you to explain to our audience uh, what what the process of pharmacovigilance is. And again, where where the the burden of proof is essentially on the manufacturer to prove that their product. Yeah, is- yeah, so it's a good, um, so in other words, Dane is a pharmacovigilance tool, correct? Yeah, so I mean, pharmacovigilance, that word vigilance is everything. Um, and it's, it's typically applied to post marketing surveillance. So uh, a drug has a long pipeline of development, you know, over 10 years for drugs and vaccines in general, uh, which include all of the, you know, make assessments in animals. Um, especially if you're intending a mass market, um, you know, uh, to, to make sure there's no genotoxicity, carcinogenicity, developmental and reproductive toxicity, and a host of other things. You need to know, especially if you've got a protein, you need to know the full toxicology, every way that can cause uh, human uh, disease. Um, but then, you, you, you know, in the d- development pipeline that, it, that gets through to animal, then human studies, and then bigger human studies, looking at, the required outcomes. But then you have post-marketing surveillance, and that acknowledges that even after all of that, you may have significant uh, significant adverse events and safety signals, and we'll come back to that word signals, uh, that, that weren't picked up in all of those human phases before. Yeah, And uh, that's exactly the situation we had. Yeah, once the drug is released onto a population, given that um, participants for clinical trials are uh, usually subject to a, a to a handpicking process, right, where where people in all sorts of categories are actually excluded, be that pregnant women, people who are already on multiple medications, people with multiple comorbidities, they tend to get omitted from these phase three trials. Yep. And then the drug is yep. actually released out into the general pool of people who, uh, I suppose the other thing about clinical trials is that there tends to be an underrepresentation of, for instance, ethnic minorities. They're less likely to be <clears throat> in these clinical trials. So once you release the drug out into the wild, as it were, it not only goes into you know, the bodies of, of uh, potentially you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, even billions of people, but a far more diverse pool of people. And then, yeah, all sorts of reactions. Plus, plus they're taking it for longer in many cases. That's not true of vaccines, but um, for, for drugs. Well, absolutely. Yeah, they're taking well, well, it. Go, go ahead. Mate. I, mean, I mean, absolutely. So there is, at the moment, we've just had the fifth dose um, approved for the over 65-year-olds in Australia. There is no randomised controlled trial uh, that shows a benefit over zero. So there's no comparison available. Excellent. Uh, of zero doses versus five. So when we started off at two versus two doses versus zero, um, a we didn't have the statistical power, that is the size of the sample and the duration, um, to really exclude major adverse events. 
uh, of significance. Um, but B, um, there, there, there was always an anticipation of more doses. So we're in an evidence, almost an evidence-free zone if we're to apply the gold standard. Now, further back to the gold standard, what, the, the, there are out, the different outcomes used. And I'm very critical of the outcome used in the Pfizer study and some other studies because it was, it, you know, that we were told, you know, 95 or 90 plus percent efficacy. Um, I would have suggested, there's lots of things I could say about this, but I would have suggested that the, the correct standard, uh, if you're especially intending this for billions of people, was to show that you reduced the hospitalization and death. Yes, but and they, these, these, were not even, uh, these weren't even, you know, uh, endpoints of the trial, right? They, they, they no, weren't even. Well, yeah. Now, the point I'm making is that in, currently there is no trial in existence that has been randomised to placebo that has those outcomes which are the most important. Mm. There's been presuppositions uh, and there's been... Um, extrapolations, and then there's been non-controlled data. So, you know, looking at samples and, and trying to uh, analyse them, but they are not placebo-controlled. And there's so, multiple, so multiple confounds, yeah. so many confounding factors, including that, that health. So many. So there's biases and confounders, and if a gold standard is a gold standard, we haven't used it. Mm. And yet, uh, you know, we, we merely keep making these claims and adding to the schedule extra booster doses. Yes, which I'm so glad you pointed out that there basically there is no clinical study uh, that shows the efficacy of, of, of boosters, um, particularly once now we're getting onto the fifth. It's just nuts. All right. Yeah. Um, our next story, uh, the New York Times, I am paraphrasing this somewhat, but the New York Times admits masks are about as useful as tits on a bull. So, again, look, I, I wrote a substack about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, it was the first in my I Informed You Thusly series. So this is I Informed You Thusly Part 1, published February 10, and this is about the latest Cochrane review showing that <laughs> masks don't work. So, Chris, your your comments. Yeah, look, on, on basic principles, there were always massive challenges to the concept that masks would work, and this just relates to the size of poles and just the fact that untrained members of the population were going to be using them and um, using them outside of specifications, um, handling them, using them for hours on end or days on end. As we all know, uh, the boxes themselves of the various masks in in, uh, in use said not you know, not to be used for, um, you know, uh, reducing viral transmission. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be hard if people hadn't been fined, roughed up by the police, you know, attacked, yeah. assaulted by members of the public. It'd be laughable, wouldn't it? I mean, when, when the actual text on the box says, by the way, this doesn't prevent viruses, and yet people people were, were made to wear these. They, they were physically injured mm. by police if they were not wearing these, even when they had exemption. It was... You know, it, I was often asking myself, can I be compelled by the law to uh, be a hypocrite, knowing that I knew that they didn't work? Um, so it was a difficult position to be in. But, you know, you mentioned the evidence was always against it. Now, there were some studies in influenza um, that, uh, that suggested very early it may be able to be used, but that's giving it a lot of... Um, Sort of benefit of the doubt. There were already systematic reviews 
suggesting they did not reduce viral transmission. And so, uh, you know, in our pandemic plans, um, our own pandemic plan, 2019, which is really worth looking at because essentially we got everything right. And that was August 2019. Yeah, that was August. Said that they, they didn't be used. 2019. Yeah. It's extraordinary. And, yeah, absolutely right. There was yeah. no recommendation for, for, you know, quarantining of the entire population, no recommendation for masks. No, no. I don't. I well, there was a recommendation against masks. And mm. the onus is on the public service in particular to show exactly their consideration of that advice in contrast to the advice they previously had. I'm, you know, we... we, we AMS has just issued a press release on, on the mask issue. And, the, and, the re, and obviously now we've got very definitive data. We had an excellent um, Danish randomised controlled trial in 2021. And yet we still have many workplaces um, required to do this. And going back to this whole theme that we've, we've developed of infantilization, what the colleges of uh, medicine and the various groups representing doctors need to face as a difficult question is have they in fact been infantilized? Uh, have, and again, this is a 2020 onwards issue. And if, the, if we're in fact already um, doing things that we knew weren't, weren't correct, weren't actually evidence-based, and we were somehow playing the game uh, you know, to comply, then what did this? What did what has this set up within our profession? Uh, subsequent to that, if we didn't stand up and blow the whistle and holler about this in 2020, mm. I um, I'm always hesitant to to bring up uh, examples from from this particular era in history, but I think it's relevant. The out of all the professions in Germany before the outbreak of World War II, uh, doctors actually had the highest percentage of members of the Nazi Party, and doctors were uh, quite enthusiastic participants in the uh, murderous. Uh, policies of, of Hitler, which went well beyond killing Jews, of course. Um, he had it in for disabled people and elderly people and Jews, uh, it were gypsies and gay people and communists, obviously, all sorts of people. So, yes, when we have, mm. uh, we have doctors abandoning reason, uh, endorsing positions which, which, they, which they just know to be false, which they know to be factually untrue, it's, it's not a good sign. It's like, you know, I, I think it was Mark Twain who said history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. Well, I'm hearing wrong. I love that. I love that. Well, look, to, to flip that, um, doctors could have changed this, uh, and equally unions, churches, and many other sizable groups could have changed this, definitely. Uh, in, in, but, they, but we would have had to um, stand up probably in 2020 mm. um, at, at certain things um, because the process was, was insidious. It was doctors could have done this. Yep. Yeah, we certainly certainly should have done this uh, as advocates of our patients first, mm. not as sorry as my kid. I just um, <laughs> he's good at getting attention, isn't he? So you know, I'll I'll start all this again. So yeah, to flip that, doctors um, could have made a real stand and could have changed all of this had they have had their voice, had they have not been subjected to uh, a very insidious campaign of medical censorship. Mm. Um, which is a whole other discussion. Equally, other groups in society could have done that. The unions, uh, the, the churches, other groups, certainly our politicians could have done a better job en masse. Mm. But 
We didn't. And I think that's, that's the biggest lesson for doctors and others, um, that we must never become captured uh, as public servants alone. The doctor-patient relationship defines us, defines our primary duties. And, you know, that's, that I think, that I think is going to be discussed for a long time to come. Yes, yes. I think uh, if there are historians of this era, if, if, if we're permitted to have a, you know, an honest, unbiased analysis of this, I think they are going to be unpacking the failures in all of these institutions that, that you've mentioned, um, the, the medical profession and, and allied professions, nurses as well, the, um, the, the, the churches, the unions, all of the groups that people, you know, should have been able to count on to, to be their advocates failed them them and that's an absolute tragedy yeah well one thing I've, I'd, I'd say here is that um there was constant talk of science and following the science but science um develops very slowly painstakingly and carefully and only occurs uh in an authentic form where there's real integrity and honesty mm. uh, that is you know there's many things which would lead oh uh chris i've lost you Sorry, you, you've just gone on mute. Okay, sorry, but, uh, back up. So, look, um, you know, as, as um, so I'll just start that again. So, look, uh, we, there was lots of talk about science and following the science, um, but there's, you know, science only really occurs authentically where there's real integrity, truth, transparency. Mm. Um, that's a, a Carl, what's his name? Uh, Carl Popper's... Uh, uh, assessment, a uh, famous uh, philosopher of science. And there are many reasons to question whether that's been the case. But when uh, the main thing is science develops painstakingly and slowly. It has to, by definition, in the sense that it has to, you know, reproducibility, um, different groups doing the same thing. It all has to happen like that. Yes. Um, the distortion, this, this talk of the speed of science and response to the markets is you know, right, um, is um, really open to to distortion. But my point there um, is that it, when you don't have science, uh, you know, official, you know, conclusive answers, you have the bedrock of sound logic, compassion, and ethics. So yeah. that should have been enough, especially the ethics. I mean, highly developed systems of ethics in the doctor-patient relationship um, with historical lessons embedded in all of that. Yeah. That should have been enough to navigate this very well indeed. It, it, you, what, and that's a massive failure. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt, Chris. Um, uh, what, what you're saying actually reminds me of an article that I read quite early on in this whole, um, I call it the manufactured COVID crisis by by Matthew Crawford. That's the Matthew Crawford with two Ts. There's another Matthew Crawford with only one T who's also got some interesting things to say. But the the two T Matthew Crawford said uh, in an article that that he wrote, I believe it was on Unheard, and he wrote that um, you can't follow the science because science doesn't lead anywhere. Science produces facts. It produces data, right? And then people have to make decisions as to what to do with those facts. But science doesn't make those decisions. People do. And people have to exercise, as you say, their their, their judgment and their moral sense and their compassion to, to decide yeah. on policy. Science doesn't make policy. Science provides facts and data, and then people make policy. So that's that is a, a fact that was um 
it wasn't just ignored it was just ridden roughshod ridden roughshod over so chris uh yeah, i know i you- mean just to just to fill that out like i know i've only got minutes but um you know th- things like not not coercing a patient ever uh, mm. realizing that that informed consent is mutually exclusive to conditions of coercion it just you cannot administer informed consent you know prizing the autonomy of patients uh, never mocking them in their decision making processes um, and and a series of other things I'm, I'm focusing on the vaccination issue you know uh, vaccine hesitancy uh, was it was almost railroaded it was identified as a problem mm. rather than um, potentially a reasonable response uh, to processing very complicated issues uh, among among uh, the body of patients so Yes. This is a lot of what has taken place is unethical. A lot of um, a lot of patients have experienced that. Gaslighting of patients is a, is a critical problem, and um, I actually think that'll be a positive thing. Yeah, including the I, I think that the yeah, I mean, I think gaslighting has become a much more popular word. Everyone's probably had to look that up on Wikipedia in the last few years to really get a grasp of it. But I think the the kind of medical behaviour of gaslighting is going to be a fertile area of study. Gaslighting mm. is already known uh, in, in other contexts to cause health problems through probably through stress anyway. So mm. it's it's a it's a travesty that that many reports in the patient journey seem to involve this issue of um, consistent gaslighting when they're trying to, for instance talk about the sequelae of of vaccination that they've experienced. And doctors just have a clear professional bias not to want to acknowledge that too often. Yes, yes, 100%. And this is just an absolute tragedy. I mean, it's it's tragedy upon tragedy. So many of these people were were coerced into taking shots that they didn't want and and actually didn't need because they weren't at risk. Then they suffer an injury. Then they go back to, to the doctor and say, hey, you know, I'm suffering all these symptoms. Uh, has it got anything to do with with that vaccine I had? And the doctor says, no, it's all in your head. You know, anxiety is one of the most common diagnoses that the vaccine injured get, and that's that's just absolutely appalling. Chris, uh, it has been such a such a pleasure and a joy to speak to you today. Looking forward to to doing this again in the future. Um, any any last words for our our stand up uh, audience before I leave you for your busy day? No, just thank you for what you do. It's a, a really excellent interview, and I love the fact that we covered um, so many different areas. So thank you. Terrific. All right. Uh, uh, see you next time, and um, uh, we'll I think we, we'll have Mitch back on deck uh, on my side of the microphone for our next week's uh, stand up uh, stand up sit down podcast. Thank you.